This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. But now it's time for Uncancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. Now, Elon Musk is one man you can't accuse of failing to put his money where his mouth is. Less than a month after these tweets, the world's richest man today tabled a sensational £34 billion bid to buy woke cesspit Twitter outright. His hostile takeover attempt comes just weeks after the SpaceX and Tesla boss bought an initial 9% stake in the company. It's a big chunk of his £200 billion net worth, but free speech champions think it could be worthwhile if Elon manages to prevent Twitter censoring voices it doesn't agree with, not least former US President Donald Trump. So tabling his bid, uh, Musk said, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. And I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. However, since making my investment, I now realise the company will neither thrive nor serve this societal imperative in its current form. Twitter bosses are still discussing the offer. Elon said a no deal would force him to reconsider his position as a shareholder. So, Zuby, what do you make of this? Can Twitter be saved with Musk's intervention? And what do you think about that valuation? Dan, I think that we live in very interesting and unprecedented times. I've never seen a move like this, let alone be able to see it play out in the real world, as we're saying. And I think that Elon ultimately, beyond any type of politics, Elon Musk is a disruptor. And I've been on the Twitter platform for over 12 years. As time has gone on, it's become a lot more censorious. They've moved against their original free speech principles. They've banned and deplatformed tons and tons of people from high-profile people. I mean, you can't get more high-profile than a sitting president of the USA and many people beyond that. So. I think the fact that this is even shining a spotlight on this censorship effect and what's going on at Twitter for those who may not even be aware, I think that in itself is very powerful. From a business perspective, um, having $200 billion plus dollars is a lot to, is a lot to throw around. Whether or not Twitter will accept the deal, that remains to be seen. Yeah, and it's interesting because... One of their shareholders has already come out and said this undervalues Twitter. But isn't the more fundamental point whether they actually want Elon Musk to take over? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think perhaps you're referring to, uh, I think it's one of the princes of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I think they own 5%. Yes, their investment fund owns a significant point of Twitter. So even, I mean, seeing Elon Musk on Twitter having a discussion and debate and a confrontation with a Saudi prince is not what I expected to wake up to today. So look, I think as a business, as far as I understand, Twitter has not been making a lot of money. They've been losing a lot of money over the years because the advertising platform does not work in the same way it does with something, say, such as Facebook or Google. As a company, it needs to be shaken up. As a platform, it needs to be shaken up. They need to actually adhere to these so-called Western, liberal, and democratic principles of free speech, which simply means allowing people to 
have discussions without uh, overwrought fears of censorship and being kicked off or being stifled. All of that is extraordinarily important. It's what makes shows like this so important, being able to discuss ideas. If we're not able to discuss ideas, then the only ways that we can solve problems are via segregation or via physical violence. So we always have to keep those communication pathways open. Well, Zubi, I view Twitter as an anti-free speech platform now. I, I really do. There are countless examples. I mean, we just had the respect my sex, if you want my ex, women on. The number of women who have just tried to stand up for the rights of biological women who have seen themselves booted off that platform. And then just this week, uh, the brilliant folk at the Together Declaration have done a really good job in terms of campaigning against vaccine passports and vaccine mandates and all of that sort of thing. They were apparently banned by Twitter for a period because they had posted about their campaign uh, to go against uh, enforce child vaccinations. So to me, Twitter doesn't encourage free speech. It's become an anti-free speech platform. So I actually think Elon Musk maybe is its last hope. Yeah. And look, like I said, whether or not the deal actually goes through, yeah. I think the fact that people are shaken up by this is incredibly important. Because what happens with this sort of incremental creep is that it happens bit by bit, little bit of censorship by little bit of censorship. And then over the course of a decade, as you said, you look back on it and people are getting kicked off the platform for saying very basic things, which shouldn't even be all that controversial. And even if they are controversial, you should be allowed to say controversial things. You should be allowed to dissent. You should be allowed to go against the mainstream political and media narratives. And you should be allowed to ask questions. We're not talking about people here who are making uh, violent threats against people or planning terrorist activity or anything like that. We're simply talking about people who have a different perspective. And if you support free speech, that's not for the views you agree with. That is specifically to defend people who you disagree with and may even dislike. That means that you are truly yeah. upholding free speech. And I want to hear to... from people who I don't agree with, Zuby. That's what I don't understand. Yes. I mean, to me, Twitter became a joke. It actually became a joke. They're a laughable organization. The moment that they said uh, a democratically elected US president cannot be on this platform, but the Taliban can be on this platform and the Russian defense ministry can be on this platform, the Chinese defense ministry can be on this platform. By the way, I'm not saying the Chinese and the Russians should be booted off. I'm just saying Trump should be there too. So I actually think they've just become a bit of a joke. But the problem is we can't all just quit Twitter en masse because we know it's where all of the journalists are. It's where all of the influencers are. It's where all of the politicians are. So, of course, sometimes we live in this fantasy world of, oh, we can go to Getter or we can go to Truth Social or we can go to a new platform. But Twitter does have a real power. Mm -hmm. Twitter is a fantastic platform. It's personally my yeah. favorite social media network. The problem is that as a business, as a company, it's not run very well. And the moderation policies are biased and unfair. Yeah. That's what needs to fix. But it never used to be that way. Yeah. And it no. never used to be that way. And, and I think Elon Musk, you know, you've just got to hope he's the man to do it. But we will see. Zuby, fascinating nope. stuff. Thank you so much for being here. We'll speak again next week.
It seems chilling and almost unbelievable, doesn't it, that in 2022, a new women's rights movement, the most historically significant since the suffragettes, is required to protect biological females. But I actually have no doubt that this movement is now imperative and urgent, and that's why I fully support the new campaign, Respect My Sex If You Want My Ex, whose leaders, Caroline Fisk, Maya Forstatter and Heather Binning, appeared on this really brilliant Daily Mail front page to fire a warning to our gutless leaders ahead of the May local elections. The new campaign brings together the brains behind three vital women's rights groups, and I'm delighted to say two of the brave activists, Caroline of uh, Women Uniting and Heather of the Women's Rights Network, have joined me in the studio. They're alongside their fellow Respect My Sex If You Want My Ex campaigner, the author and director of advocacy at the campaign group Sex Matters, Helen Joyce, who was a guest at J.K. Rowling's Sunday Lunch, which the Harry Potter author hosted to support all of these brilliant campaigns. And thank you so much for being here this evening. Uh, Caroline, did you have any idea what impact this campaign was going to have? Because when I spoke about it on the show for the first time, the response from viewers was overwhelming. OK, so so many of us started on Twitter and social media. So we really started small. We were scared. Many of us were anonymous. We found each other, Twitter, Facebook, Mumsnet and um, slowly got bigger and braver, started our different groups, uh, Women's Rights Network, um, Sex Matters, um, all of Women Uniting are from different political parties. And so from that small beginning, <laughs> we started this campaign. And I think... You know what, oh, sorry, let me just... Yes, yeah, no, we, we originally just thought, you know, we'll be going for it on Twitter, we might be trying to get it trending. So it's been successful beyond, beyond our wildest, wildest dreams, dreams, and it just shows... Everybody's ready for it. Everybody's ready to mm. speak out loud about this subject and to say that sex matters. And I think what's obviously really important is you brought the groups together as well. So yes. it's a united voice. Uh, mm -hmm. Heather, can you just explain for people who don't know what the fundamental goal of the campaign is and how people can get involved? Because what you're essentially saying is that before the local elections, there's a real opportunity, isn't there, to test the people who you're going to be voting for. So, huge opportunity. All, what I know from all the women in the network and also outside the network we hear from others, anyway, is that women are politically homeless at the moment. They they don't know who to vote for. They, they don't feel they can vote for Labour or uh, Lib Dems or, you know, they're just not getting the response from politicians that they want in terms of what happens, what, what it means for them. And so responding to that, we thought, well, let's get these questions out there. I mean, you've, you've seen there's been plenty of footage of the um, government politicians stumbling over this thing. It's such a difficult thing. I'm not a biologist. It's complicated, <laughs> you know, and it, this is so frustrating uh, to women. This, it is not complicated. This is the easiest thing in the world. It's only complicated if, A, you're being bullied, or, B, you think the votes are sitting in another direction. So... This was a big moment to try and get those questions out. It's local, local politics, so we really didn't think we'd have the biggest, this big impact that we have, as Caroline said. But get the questions asked at the doorstep. Uh, I think it was David Lamy, or quite a number of them, said, this, this never arises on the doorstep. So we thought, <laughs> yeah. right, number it's one. It's going to. It's going well, to. Look, change you you talk about those politicians and, and their reaction. So I've put together some of 
the best or you might say the worst. <laughs> so let's take a look and Helen, I'll get you to respond off the back. She's a woman. Well, I thought the Prime Minister uh, answered this brilliantly in Prime Minister's Question Times. In Prime Minister's Questions this week, and I fully agree with him. Wait, and so what is your definition of a woman? Uh, as I said, I would exactly agree with what the Prime Minister said at Prime Minister's Question Times. When we're having a social media or a debate around whether someone's, what genitalia someone's got, I think it really debases the serious issues that people face. A I woman can't have a penis. I don't think that um, discussing this issue in this way helps anyone in the long run. People are complex that they, that, and that they are different. Well, I have to say that there are different definitions legally around what a woman actually is. I mean, you look at the definition within the Equality Act, and I think it just says um, uh, someone who is um, adult and female, I think, but then doesn't say how you define either of those things. Is it transphobic to say only women have a cervix? Is it, is it transphobic? Look, I just, I don't even know how to start answering these questions. Helen, <laughs> I mean, this is why we need your campaign, right? Your reaction. It's extremely painful to watch, isn't it? It is. I mean, for two reasons. One is they all know they're going to get asked. So would you, for the love of God, would you please prepare a decent yeah. answer and just say it? If you're going to talk absolute nonsense, would you not do the whole stuttering rubbish beforehand? <laughs> uh, but the second thing is, why are we asking this question? It's not because we want to catch somebody out. It's not a gotcha question. It's not a trivial question. The reason is that some of our human rights are sex-based rights. Some of them are for men, some of them are for women, some of them require that you can say who is a man and who is a woman. Child safeguarding, for example. It is impossible to keep children safe if you cannot talk about human sex. Yeah. If you cannot say this person is male, this person is female, those two people should not be in this space sleeping together. If you cannot say those things, you cannot keep children safe. You cannot give women dignity and privacy. And so it's not a gotcha question. We're asking people, can you give women safety, privacy and dignity? Mm. Do you know what child safeguarding is? And the short way to, to, to ask that question of somebody is to say, what's a woman? What's sex? Indeed. And Karen, I think it's also really important to point out, isn't it, that that doesn't make you transphobic. <laughs> Absolutely not. So what, that's what you're accused yeah. of a lot. Yeah. So I would say we're all across our campaign very clear that in a free society, we can all explore our identity, um, describe ourselves how we like, dress how we like, love who we want to love. So we can explore our identity, but sex is real and sex matters. Mm. As Helen said, you know, very particularly for women, for our dignity, our privacy and our safety in prisons, in hospital wards, in sports. So identify how you like, but sex is real and sex matters. Helen, you're one of the women who was cancelled, really, weren't you, for talking about, uh, talking out on this, speaking out on this issue, sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean... Because you were, you were literally not allowed to speak at certain events, for, for example. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's true. That but is we, we ran better ones. to women. We ran better ones instead. But it uh, is shocking, yeah. isn't it? It, it is, is shocking. It is shocking because if you look at J.K. Rowling, and she is obviously the most high-profile example, and obviously she can maybe deal with it better than other women who are worried, and I, and I have read what you've all said, you are approached by women who say, 
they are scared to speak out mm. because they're worried about losing their jobs, for example. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I'm a journalist and until very recently I was The Economist's Britain editor and they've been extremely good to me and have given me a leave of absence to go and work at Sex Matters. So I can't say my career has suffered. But just very recently I was invited to come and talk to a bunch of trainee child psychiatrists who want to know more about how you, how you treat gender questioning children. Very important question because some treatment pathways put you on the path to sterility. Mm to permanent interventions when you're still very young. And um, they dropped me from the programme because some of the people who disagree that you should be careful, go slow, uh, do exploratory work with children before you do uh, irreversible treatments. Some of those people sent the most outrageous defamatory remarks about me to the organisers. And in the end, they had to drop me. And then in the end, the conference was actually cancelled. So I don't care so much about me. I care about the fact that there are children. Mm. And this conversation has happened. Yeah. been had. Yes. Heather, women's sport, it's a real passion of mine. I absolutely love it. And if you look at some of these organisations like Stonewall, it, if, it feels like if the sporting bodies are going to continue to listen to them, women's sport, I believe, is at a genuine risk. Do you feel the same? Absolutely. There's no women's sport. There will just be sport. And it used to be, there used to be a time when it was just sport and then women's sport came along. Cycling, I think it was 1984 before women's cycling was in the Olympics. I'm not sure if that's your lifetime, Dan, but it's Just. not Just. It's not that long ago. No, it's and not. It's absolutely absurd that finally we had women's sports and for some reason, some people in society think that they want to be part mm. of that. And team sports too. I mean, I'm a big supporter of the London Pulse netball team <laughs> and all you would need is one non-biological female in that team and the whole game goes out the window. It's... The whole game goes out the window, but also there's somebody that's not taking part because that place is taken well, yes. by yes. a man. Now, that's happening at the grassroots. So we're not just talking elite sports here. That's right. Down on the ground, yeah, yeah. community level sports. So, uh, so People so are dropping out. So there will not be any elite women because women, they're just walking no. away from it saying, I don't want to play football with men. And I think it was Guam over the weekend, was it? Three women injured in a rugby match because there was a male player on the other side. Shocking. So, so does this require this government intervention? If they don't, if they don't fix it, then yes. yes. I mean, the interventions that we've had to take, not me personally, I've had to take, have been through the courts. That is fixing a lot of it. That is redressing the picture through the courts. So. Maybe it will be some nice big court case because somebody's been seriously injured. Yeah, but we don't sport. want it to get to that point. That's no, of course thing. we don't. We want it this to just get back. Now, Helen, finally, you know I'm going to ask you <laughs> this lunch that it feels like the whole yeah. world was talking about. So J.K. Rowling invited a whole load of campaigners who've been in a relatively similar position to her to party, basically. And, and, and what went down? What was it like? I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> nearly 20 women sitting around talking about our nails and our hair and our makeup <laughs> and our kids and our knitting and our cooking. That is not what we did. Yes. <laughs> uh, we had a lovely lunch. There was a lot of laughing, a lot of chat. Um, just what you would get if you had a bunch of people who've been dying to get together after the pandemic, who've been supporting each other on social media. Uh, jo has been very kind and very generous in support of women who... She, she swoops in when she sees that somebody is being un, put under attack. She does. She was very supportive to my colleague Maya Forstatter, for yes. example, when Maya was, uh, was kicked out of her job. 
at so, great yeah. cost, by the way. And, mm, and yeah. we're not talking yes. financially here. But J.K. Rowling has essentially been hounded out of Hollywood. That is mm. just a fact. Uh, how much of an inspiration is the stand that she's taken for someone like you? I mean, it's, it's actually impossible to, to express fully. So people did stand up at this, at this lunch and say a few words, several people just spontaneously, and there were tears. A couple of people stood up and said, if you hadn't reached out to me, I don't know what I would have done. Um, I handed her a copy, a preprint copy of my paperback book, um, which is out on the 5th of May, and got her to write in it, and it will be now my most treasured possession is that copy of that book. Amazing. She said that it had been uh, a game changer, I think, was what she said, and Amazing. I'll be proud of that forever. Well, look, what you're doing is absolutely brilliant. It's so important. And I'm literally now, you know, usually I dread the MP arriving at my door <laughs> and I now cannot wait because I've got a question to ask. You must let us know what oh, it I says. Will. I'm going to record it. I'm going to yeah. record it and I will be ready to roll. We have had some run away. <laughs> really? <Yes. laughs> but look, you're making a big change. Thank you so much for being here. It's a brilliant campaign. That was Caroline Fisk, Heather Binning and Helen Joyce, the brave women's rights advocates running the Respect My Sex If You Want My Ex campaign. Now, earlier this week, justice was served as Islamist terrorist Ali Haviali was sentenced to life in prison for the horrendous murder of the great MP Sir David Ames. Watching all the tough revelations at his trial was David's close personal friend Anne Whittacombe, who has tirelessly supported the Ames family since his tragic death. She's attended every difficult day in court. And as you know, because I've been speaking about it on the show all this week, the trial has prompted a barrage of calls for an overhaul of the counterterrorism programme Prevent, which failed to stop Ali, along with multiple other terrorists in the last five years. Former Cabinet Minister Robert Jenrick says even after the police detained Ali under the Terrorism Act, many were unwilling to countenance extremism as the motive. He's calling for the establishment to finally acknowledge that the murder of his friend was an act of Islamic extremism. Well, Anne agrees and says the government needs to stop worrying about appearances and ensure its prevent programme has the right focus. And she joins me now to talk about her dear friend, David. And Anne, I know you were waiting until after the trial to talk about this. And I know it must be very emotional for you because you were very close to David. And I want to hear your thoughts on him overall. But all week on the show, Anne, I have been wanting to shine a light on the reality of his death, because I feel people shied away from it at the time. They wanted to talk about online trolling. They wanted to talk about civility and politics. They wanted to talk about MPs not slagging each other off. But, and that's actually not what killed your friend. This was a hardened, homegrown Islamist extremist, and the media doesn't really seem to want to tackle that. Now, you're quite right. I mean, this was a man who uh, was clever. Um, he's educated, he's articulate, he's intelligent, and he had a career before him, possibly at one point, as a doctor. Uh, and uh, then what happened was he became what he described as self-radicalised. Um, and we all know what that means, and largely through the net. 
Um, and he developed the idea that it was the will of Allah that he should kill uh, people who were any sort of threat to Muslims, and he put in that bracket MPs who'd voted to, to bomb Islamic State. Uh, and that was why he decided to kill David. Now, you know, there was no other reason, and he never said that there was any other reason or pretended there was any other reason. This was uh, a, a, an example of extreme Islam. Uh, and actually, I think counsel for the prosecution who did a terrific job, but they missed one trick. They said to him, um, counsel said to him, uh, are you uh, an extreme Muslim? And he said, no, I'm a moderate Muslim. I would have liked the next question to be, so what's an extreme Muslim then? Because that's what he is. Now, I think lots of things about this. Um, first of all, it's crucial that anybody who thinks that a friend or a relative, even a very close relative like a son or a brother, who may be becoming radicalized, it's Im desperately important that they report that, not only uh, in order to save potential victims, but also for the sake of that person. Because I'm glad, and God forbid that I should rejoice in anybody's imprisonment, but I am glad that what he's facing is not the martyrdom he wanted to die in a hail of police bullets, yeah. take some shortcut to paradise. He's got instead half a century or more of being confined, moving between a narrow cell, probably with a loo in it, uh, to an exercise yard which is restricted. He's never going to be able to wander free, not even able to do something very simple, like meet a friend for coffee, uh, you know, go out uh, to the shops. Never anything of that sort ever again. And I want the message to go out to anybody who is contemplating an act of terror. That is what is waiting for you. Uh, and that, I think, is a crucial message. But the other thing, I think, is what are the moderate um, imams doing in all of this? Because they're the people that I would look to and I would say, right, you know, the message we most desperately need from you now is that this is not the will of Allah, that this is not what the Quran teaches, that this is not going to get you into paradise with your 72 virgins or whatever it might be. This is actually wrong. And that is a message which I would like to hear coming out more and more from the mosques. Indeed. Indeed. But, Anne, the big issue, I think, with this case, and I, I wonder how devastating it must be for you as a close friend, that a teacher close to Ali yes. actually did spot what you just suggested. She spotted that her student was becoming radicalised and she did exactly the right thing and she should get a lot of, of praise for this. She reported Ali to the authorities and he actually entered the PREVENT program, but he managed to bamboozle them. He was too clever. The program isn't fit for purpose, Anne. And it just breaks my heart that he was there and he, he, he got out of it. I mean, how do you feel about that? And what does it mean about PREVENT? Well, obviously, you know, that teacher needs praise. She was alert. She saw what was happening. Um, I do not expect the PREVENT program to get it right 100% of the time. I don't expect any program anywhere 
to get things right 100% of the time. Uh, but I think probably it needs to have a good look at this case and at what went wrong. And I suspect they were too ready uh, to accept assurances, too ready to be deceived. And he is a very clever chap and he would be able to deceive if that's what he set out to do. Uh, so I think, yes, the PREVENT program needs a good overhaul, but I'm not going to point fingers of blame uh, because there is no such thing as, as a foolproof program. No such thing. And then... I know the family are devastated. Their statement outside court was truly heartbreaking. Mm. How are they going to deal with this loss long term? Well, as uh, Julia said, that's David's widow, as she said in the statement, you know, it's going to be with them. They're, they're, they're going to think of him every day. Um, and uh, he has left behind a tremendous legacy. Um, when I was outside the court uh, after the sentencing, and uh, I had just done a, a massive press conference, and, and I was pretty tired, and I was just leaving, and I was stopped. And I was stopped by an ordinary citizen who came up to me. He's an NHS worker. He's ethnic minority. And he said to me, David helped me in the early 1990s when he was in Basildon. And I've never forgotten it, he said. Those were his words. I've never forgotten it. And that is David's legacy. It's not only that South End is a city, it's not only that he's got a train uh, named after him, but his legacy will go on uh, for a long time to come, whereas in about a year's time, I doubt if anybody would remember the name of Ali Harby Ali. No, they will not. And that is the perfect note to end it on. Former Tory Minister Anne Whittacombe, a close friend of uh, the late MP David Ames. Thank you so much. Dan Wilson here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wilson tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.